the National Archives podcast series, Losing Autumn in the Archives, presented by Dr. Matt Cook of Birkbeck College. In 1989, the literary critic Simon Shepherd prefaced Because We're Queers, his book on Joe Autumn and Kenneth Halliwell, with the following acknowledgement. Thanks to the staff of Islington Central Library for their helpfulness and in particular to Eric Willits, now retired, who had the foresight to establish and mainstream an Orton archive before Orton became an industry. No such gratitude is due, unfortunately, to Orton's theatrical agent, whose manner did a disservice to her late client and whose obstructiveness did a disservice to researchers. That's extraordinary acknowledgement at the start of this book. Peggy Ramsey, Orton's agent and literary executor, had called a halt to their short correspondence four years earlier. Please do not write to me any more about Joe Orton, she wrote. You can get a full list of the material he has written on the back of the publications of any of his plays. Anything else has been fully researched by John Lahr in his book. I gave John every piece of information and there is nothing more to be said. La, Orton's biographer, had yet to deposit his research materials on Orton at Boston University. And it wasn't until 1997 that the University of Leicester purchased the fragmented holdings on the, of the Orton estate and the British Library acquired the Ramsey Archive. In the period Shepherd was working on Because We're Queers, it was Islington Central Library alone that was allowing access to primary material relating to Orton and Halliwell. And this was basically limited to the library book covers the couple had defaced and material on the resulting prosecution of 1962. Writing and researching in the context of the growing AIDS crisis and a vicious homophobic backlash in the UK, Shepherd interpreted Ramsey and Lahr as heterosexist gatekeepers of the Orton legacy, monopolising the playwright in the interests of an Orton industry. People who try to work on Orton and Halliwell come up against this power over the papers, wrote Shepherd. Letters in the Ramsey Archive, now available at the British Library, indeed show her routinely discouraging or turning away those wanting to work on the playwright. It was, she repeatedly claimed, well-worn ground, and in any case, it was La who now had all the materials. When the Orton critic, Francesca Coper, began her research seven years on from Shepherd in 1994, the situation had changed. Ramsey had died in 1991, and La, the Orton family, and various archivists were eager and happy to help. Access to material relating to Orton, including the Ramsey Archive in London, is now straightforward. What it reveals is not. Romantically and or naively, I was looking forward to some sort of encounter with Orton in these archives. But though access is now unhindered, the archives re-emphasised the distance the playwright adeptly maintained between himself and his various audiences. There is precious little in Orton's own hand or typescript. Most of the original diary is missing, unread even by La, who edited it for publication, and folder after folder contains letters, often duplicated and held in Leicester, Boston and London, documenting disputes over the Orton legacy, over where the material should go, who should and shouldn't have access, over how royalties should be split, implicitly too over who owned and had the right to invent the playwright after his death. And this word invent is a, is a, is a, is a word Ramsey herself uses. Orton often slips from view amidst the controversies and competing stories 
different interested parties wanted to tell about him. A posthumous reprise of his own notoriously shifting account of himself and his life. The questions I took to the archives remain pretty much unanswered. New questions emerged, however. Questions about the professional, personal, political and economic agendas in play for those who felt they had a stake in Orton's legacy and who in different ways controlled the archival material. Such questions have often haunted the histories and legacies of literary and theatrical figures. John Addington Simmons, Bertolt Breck, Garcia Lorca, disparate examples amongst them. What I want to do here, though, is to open out these questions in specific relation to Orton, focusing on the infamous diary and reflecting on what the archives can tell us about how it was shaped for the consumption of others, first by Orton himself and then by Ramsey and Lahr, who styled themselves, in Shepherd's words, as his intimates and guardians. The archives show, as I'll suggest, that Lahr and Ramsey acted in good faith for their client and subject, respectively. They were clearly protective of him. Their stewardship of the material interestingly reflects, nevertheless, the particular social and cultural climate in which they were both operating. So to start with Orton himself... Orton models in his diaries a relatively new homosexual type, a figure the historian Matt Holbrook describes as neither a queen nor normal, unequivocally masculine yet exclusively queer, a novel figure within working class culture of the 1950s. A letter in the Ramsey archive from a school peer of Orton's suggests that this was an image he had had to work on. The other kids used to make fun of him, wrote the correspondent, They teased him unmercifully. He was very effeminate, very shy, and he had long eyelashes, very smooth skin and a girlish way of talking. John was different, and he felt it. If this schoolmate is right, then it was not just a name that changed in Orton's move to London, from John to Jack in his first play, and then to Joe, but also his gendered persona. This was something his plays, his austere domestic setup, the clothes he wore, all helped to shore up. The studied indifference in the diary is part of this and is a particular production of himself for the readership he and Ramsey envisaged. Stray items elsewhere in the archive underline this. On the final page of his scrapbook of articles and reviews on loot, held at Leicester, for example, he clips an unreferenced interview extract, one in which he was probably not even the subject. The extract reads... I was not nearly so sure of myself as I should have liked, and this made me present a brassy face to the world and pretend to be more hard-boiled than I was. I developed a mocking, cynical way of treating events because it prevented them from being too painful. Now, whether the extract quotes Orton or not, its inclusion on the final page of his scrapbook, chiefly composed of reviews, interviews and mocking and crude collages, is telling of an aspect of Orton's intimate life undocumented in the diary. Francesca Coppa beautifully contrasts this with the cover of the scrapbook, which features triumphant letters blazoned over the powerful torso of a muscular man. She writes, It's all swagger, all celebration and phallic power. A very different message from the tiny square of newsprint pasted high on the left inside the back cover, looking alone and off kilter on the otherwise blank page. Read via such archival evidence, the diary becomes more evidently about Orton's pose, 
about his evasiveness and his inaccessibility. He creates this sense of distance even in his early unpublished diaries, copies of which are now held at Leicester, the originals again lost. In his 1951 diary, charting his first weeks at RADA, for example, Orton simultaneously hides and exposes his developing relationship with Kenneth Halliwell as he plays with those ideas of secrecy and revelation which had become axiomatic to queer cultures. This is an extract from this 51 diary. June the 16th, move into Ken's flat. June the 17th, well. June the 18th, well. June the 19th, well. The rest is silence, he wrote. And indeed it was. In the 15 years before Orton next takes up a diary, he says precious little about himself or his life with Ken. What he does say publicly about his life story changes, as programme blurbs held at Leicester illustrate. The interviews Lahr conducted with those who knew Orton provide glimpses of him, but, as Lahr himself notes, no one knew him well or for long, except for the man who killed him. What emerges from the Leicester archival material and the diary is a figure who had, and I'm quoting, learned the creative embellishment of his own personality. He was chameleon in the Orton he presented to others. Now, this is what, what makes Orton distinctively queer, perhaps, that refusal to let others settle on a stable identity, an identity which might be used against him. It also invited posthumous reinventions, especially given the gaps in the record, and a protectiveness on the part of his guardians about how he was being interpreted and presented. In the wake of Gay Liberation Front consciousness raising in the early 1970s, and with the onset of the HIV and AIDS crisis in the UK, these new versions of Orton and of Halliwell came to be seen as overtly political. Lars' biography, according to Shepard in the late 1980s, was a homophobic rendering of the tragedy of queer lives. His own work, an angry counterblast reclaiming a queer rebel. Now, it's this posthumous use and guardianship of the archive that I want to stay with by moving firstly to Peggy Ramsey. On August the 12th, 1967, Kenneth Halliwell killed Joe Orton and then committed suicide. He left a note on top of the diary Orton had been keeping for just over eight months. It read, if you read his diary, all will be explained, KH, especially the last part. The diary, however, ends mid-sentence on August the 1st. And the entries to that point do not provide the kind of clear explanation Halliwell refers to. What happened to these final pages remains a mystery. The film Prick Up Your Ears, which was based on Lars' biography, has Ramsay slipping the diaries under her jacket in the Knoll Road bedsit. Ramsay vehemently disputes the interpretation and was deeply unhappy at the inclusion of the scene. And indeed, letters in the archive show that she had written to the coroners and to Scotland Yard at John Lahr's request in an attempt to locate the missing pages. Now, whatever the fate of these apparently crucial entries, Ramsay was torn over what to do with the rest of the diary and was also somewhat contradictory. In a letter to Douglas Orton, Joe's eldest brother, she wrote, I think that after you have read it, that you will agree that this diary ought not to be seen by anyone. She goes on to suggest that this is on account of its trivia, the stupid camp talk of Kenneth Williams, which might be misunderstood, the portrayal of a director as a kind of hysterical queen, and the sneering comments about the family, the, the Lowenstein family, Orton and Halliwell visited in Brighton just before their deaths. 
those are all quotes, incidentally, from, from the letter. Now, Gavin Butt, um, a goldsmith, has argued in relation to the post-war New York art scene that such gossip that um, Ramsey disapproved of in the diary was a key part of queer identification in this period. And when Ramsey describes the diary as boring or trivial because of this kind of content, she was almost certainly being disingenuous. She was fully aware of the queer community of secret knowledge, it suggested. Indeed, it was perhaps in a similar spirit that she showed the first part of the diary to the journalist Harold Hobson. When he went on to mention this in a piece on Autumn he wrote for the Sunday Times, she was furious. It must have struck horror in the breast of a number of Joe's friends, she wrote. In a letter to Douglas, she said that the second diary, relating to Tangiers, would be withheld from Hobson entirely. Interest in the diaries had by now escalated, partly as a result of Hobson's article, um, with requests to view them and offers to edit for publication. These, Ramsey, who continued to act as agent in the interests of the Orton family, refers to Douglas Orton as, as administrator of the estate, though in each case her advice was unequivocal, strongly recommending a rejection of Truman Capote's approach, for example. As Capote's name is linked with that remarkable book about two murderers, I don't honestly think that this would be quite appropriate, she wrote to Douglas. Though Ramsey invites the Ortons to pick up the diaries, to be kept in a safe place, her words, they in fact remained in London. Correspondence from the period and over the years indicates her anxiety about what the sweet Orton family were hard-headed enough to posthumously take care of Joe, or indeed the diaries. One correspondent confided to Ramsey that if the manuscript passes to the family without being copied, it may be destroyed. There is a tradition of such stupidities. The diary, she wrote to Hobson after his indiscretion, should simply be put in the bank, along with the copies of the other diary, to be sealed and not read by anyone else. I alone have read the second Tangier diary. Despite such rhetoric, and this is kind of typical of the Ramsey archive, she says one thing in one letter and then completely the reverse in another. Despite such rhetoric, Ramsey, two years later, recommended that the Ortons allow John Lahr access for his proposed biography, and they agreed. Ramsey remained anxious, however. To Douglas Orton, she wrote, We ought to remove certain snide and cruel casual remarks in the final diary. We should get a copy made of the second boring diary, removing all these small items. Her use of the word boring in the letters is, is, becomes almost comical because actually it starts to be a, a euphemism for anything about sex. So, <laughs> and the, tans, the second diary about Tangiers, of course, is chiefly focused on, on Orton's sex life. So we should... Get, we should get a copy made of the second boring diary, removing all these small items. I don't think at this stage we ought to say anything to John Lahr, because he will imagine that the diary is edited, which would be absolutely untrue. There wouldn't be more than a dozen lines removed. What Ramsey eventually supplied to Lahr, after repeated requests, was a transcript made by her secretary, raising questions about what may have been excluded that the secretary died in a swimming accident shortly afterwards mean that we cannot know from her what or how much was removed. Ramsey herself certainly never let on. Most of the original diary from which the secretary worked has never been found. The actor Simon Callow, who was bequeathed Ramsey's library, found the red-bound, handwritten Tangier diary covering just the period May 7th to July 30th and now held at Leicester, but there's no sign of the rest of the diary. 
In her first reply to Simon Shepherd, Ramsay mentioned the diaries being in a hiding place in her office, a suggestion in the film too, and one which makes sense if at least part of the diary was amongst the books inherited by Callow. It seems probable that the diaries were never deposited in the bank, as the Ortons had been led to believe, and certainly there was no sign of them there when the safety deposit box was opened following Ramsay's death. A fire at the office in 1990, meanwhile, may mean that the diaries or access dockets for another deposit box may have been destroyed. Aside from the missing original diary, in 1970, Ramsay wrote to Lar that other papers relating to Orton, which she had packed in a parcel in my office, seemed to have disappeared. When a decade or so later, Leonie Orton, which is Joe's sister, tried to gather material for a prospective Joe Orton archive, she was hampered by the lack of original material. In 1986, she wrote to Ramsay that, at the moment we've hardly anything of Joe's, and what we do have is only photocopies. Someone must have the originals. After Ramsay's death, it became clear that these originals were indeed lost, and the Ortons took the Ramsay estate to court for compensation, winning £25,000 in a case which cost them 36. As Colin Chambers, Ramsay's biographer, observes, Ramsay's prime concern was for plays and their production, not the value to the scholar of the first draft, the niceties of original documentation, or the practicalities of archival conservation. Whether through carelessness or design, Lar was left to work mostly from various copies and transcripts which are now at Boston University. Shepard complains that in editing the diaries for publication in 1986, Lar gave no sense of the handwriting, the deletions, the general state of the text. It transpired, though, that Lar himself had not seen them. He was working from the Ramsey typescript of the original with whatever changes and edits she had undertaken. And this is something, in fact, that Lar keeps rather quiet about. I mean, there's no reference in the edited edition of the diary that he's been working from transcripts. So he gives a kind of illusion of, of working from the original, which I think is quite interesting. Having given Lar material for the biography, Ramsey began writing to him, anxious about how he was going to use it. In these letters, held at Boston and in duplicate in the British Library, she etched out her own fragmented biography of Joe Orton. She tried to direct Lars' approach to the material, putting in place her story of a small-town country boy whose rise to fame as a writer came in large part through Halliwell and his influence upon him. I feel disturbed about you writing a book about Joe, she admits, and then a week later observes... I think the tone would be very important because Joe was absolutely unromantic and unsentimental and he only had one overwhelming relationship allied to complete loyalty and that was to Ken. He didn't give a damn about anybody else. Ramsey was clearly concerned. These letters kind of are sent on a weekly basis to La, kind of adding bits of information, trying to shape the way in which he's approaching some of this material. It's really interesting. Ramsey was clearly concerned that La get it right and in particular, that he didn't underestimate or misread, in her terms, the relationship between the two men. I'm anxious, I'm very anxious, she wrote, that Kenneth is properly treated, not just written up as a murderer, etc. She reveals a concern that the violent deaths might overwhelm Lars' interpretation of their lives, and moreover, that he might suggest that the way those lives were lived, lived led inexorably to the particular manner of their death as indeed, Shepard argues, Lar did. This concern about Lar's presentation of the couple continued long after the biography appeared. 
In a letter of 1987, Peggy Ramsey complained that the diary of a somebody, the play La wrote based on the diaries, did little to capture what the couple had. They loved each other. There is no love in the play. I mean the kindness of affection, the camaraderie of all their years together, and the fun they had. Earlier, she was unhappy at the way the couple, in Alan Bennett's screenplay for Prick Up Your Ears, was, were framed by La and his wife, Anthea. The parallel between heterosexual marriage and homosexual marriage in the screenplay was, she wrote, ridiculous and boring. Again. Ramsey was here observing something distinctive about relationships between men, and she echoes Shepard in this. But perhaps more to the point, her comments indicate a growing resentment of La for his apparent monopoly on autumn. Even in a film about the playwright, La was writ large. There is, in the Ramsey archive, masses of correspondence arguing over the split of royalties between La and the Orton family. And the underlying theme of Ramsey's comments to and about La is that he was profiting excessively from the playwright. And there's an absolutely wonderful letter in which she discusses the font size um, of La's name on the front cover of the diaries. Um, because La had asked for the font size to be bigger than Orton's name. And there's a whole toing and froing about font, which is kind of strangely compelling. I think he feels he has invented Joe Orton, Ramsey wrote to her solicitor. And to Douglas Orton, she rails that La is behaving as if he owns the Orton estate and that he can do anything he likes. In the final year La was writing the biography, Ramsey attempted unsuccessfully to exercise some editorial, some editorial say. Of the debacle, she wrote that La imagines that there is some ulterior motive for my concern about the diary, i.e. that perhaps he thinks I'm jealous of him or I want power over Joe. In fact, all things inside himself he is transferring onto me. On the appearance of the diary of a somebody at the King's Head Theatre in Islington, Ramsay wrote to La, I hope this is the end of all the ways of exploiting this poor dead boy. This followed a letter in which she warned him that people are becoming very nasty about the continuing publicity about Joe, particularly by people who can financially gain from this. I feel absolutely dirty about the whole business, and I want no more publicity. Oscar Lewinstein and I, she added, are two of the very few people who did know Joe in this day and age, so that we both feel a deep sense of shame. Ramsey pitches her personal investment and friendship with Orton against what she saw as La's mercenary drive, noting on several occasions that the two men, men had never even met. That the La-Ramsey debacle was in full swing when Shepard was working on Because We Are Queers might explain some of Ramsey's resistance to helping him and various others out, and also her somewhat proprietorial behaviour over source material. She clearly regretted handing over too much to John Lahr. She was irritated at Islington Library for holding on to the book covers like Grim Death and pleads with the Ortons not to let any material pass to Boston University. The astute Boston archivist Howard Gottlieb, who saw Orton's significance early on and wanted him included in the library's 20th century theatre holdings, had, however, secured an agreement from the playwright in 1965 to deposit at least some of his material there. Ramsey was predictably not pleased, and in a letter to Douglas Orton reports gossip that Gottlieb was known for trying to get archival material for his library for nothing. And I think it's interesting to note the distance between Orton's own sense of honour at being asked to contribute to the library and Ramsey's eye on 
um, potential income, which, I mean, was her job. She was his agent. But there's this obvious tension between the way in which Orton was, was thinking about this deposit and Ramsey was. So it's a, a kind of side issue, but interesting. Ramsey was clearly protective of Orton, worrying that the diaries misrepresented the man she knew. He was better as a person than this, she wrote to Douglas. And there is, I think, a class-based paternalism in her concern for this poor dead boy, which gets extended to the Orton family after his death. Leonie Orton describes this feeling acutely when Ramsey referred to them as the little and sweet Orton family. So there's, there's this idea, I think, of a kind of urban intelligentsia middle class of which she was part, and then this kind of working class um, provincial family. And there's a definite air of um, patronage about that, which I think you can see in, in the way she dealt with Joe as well, and, or talks about Joe as well. There is a suspect something of this in the way Ramsey also repeatedly emphasised the significance of Halliwell in shaping Orton. Without Halliwell, Halliwell came from a middle-class background, without Halliwell, there would have been no Joe, she wrote insistently. Despite the ambition and drive evident in Orton's teenage diaries before meeting Halliwell, he is presented as the invention of others in life as well as in death. Ramsey's protectiveness and desire for control would probably not surprise those who knew her. One astonishing aspect of her archive is her mastery of detail and punctiliousness in responding promptly, almost immediately, to all correspondence. In his biography, Chambers describes a woman who he and many others held in very real affection and who commanded tremendous loyalty. She was generous with her time and papers as Chambers undertook his research on her life. She could, though, also be infuriating and exacting in her expectations of others. As he was writing, Chambers describes the sense that she was hovering over my shoulder to challenge every word. La, meanwhile, believed that his crime was twofold. To take Peggy on in a battle and to best her, and to shatter Peggy's sense of omnipotence. Until La had published on Orton, Chambers writes, she had been the keeper of Orton's flame, which, after the shock of his death, was fading. It was La who revived it. There was personal pride at stake here, but also a sense of a right to police this material. Orton was her playwright. She had championed him and guided him early in his career, and the two had developed an emotional bond. Ramsay clearly felt that Orton and Halliwell could not be properly understood beyond London's artistic and queer circles, and might be betrayed by exposure. Her tone with the Orton family in part emerges from this, she assumes that they won't understand or care. Probably Leone and you people don't mind, she wrote furiously to Douglas Orton on the proposed publication of Diary of a Somebody, the, the, the La play she so disliked. Earlier, she berated Douglas for his acquiescence to La's requests. Joe would be absolutely horrified at the casual way you allow his work to be used, that he should be exploited by a ruthless man like La would enrage him. And she has these, I mean, she veers again in her correspondence with the Ortons between being actually very generous and sweet and then these kind of absolute outbursts of fury about um, the, the, the way they're giving permission to, to others to use his work. Okay, so to John La. If what Ramsey did with the original material is unclear, the situation is much more transparent with La. The holdings at Boston University include his research papers for the biography and, most significantly for what I want to say here, a fully marked up copy of the transcribed diary showing the cuts La made in preparation for publication in 1986. 
This is revealing, hinting, as with Ramsay, at a certain protectiveness of autumn during what Lard referred to as these reactionary times in England. Homosexuality had, by the mid-1980s, come to equal early death in many minds. Jonathan Meads, reviewing the diary for the Tatler, found Autumn's death at 34 apt, adding that if he was still alive, he'd be dying from AIDS. That's a certainty. As well as being infectious and short-lived, gay men were also morally contagious and corrupting. The outraged response to the appearance of the children's book Jenny Lives with Martin and Eric in 1983 the debate about loony-left local councils and the subsequent passage of Clause 28 forcefully re-articulated the stereotype of the predatory and sexually abusive homosexual who was a danger to children. How would Jenny and the little Teddy have tucked up with Joe and Kenneth? Asked the playwright John Osborne in his diary review for The Spectator. Joe's brains peeking out between Jenny and Teddy, he writes, might have given even the most dim of Brent social workers a bit of a turn. Orton, he went on, would have relished the solemn fakery of sodomite domesticity embodied in the spectacle of Jenny cuddling brain-soaked Teddy between Ken and Joe's own prick-proud severed body. That's kind of incredible piece of writing on the part of Osborne. Editing the diaries for La in this kind of context surely shaped the kind of decisions he made. He removes, for example, the stabbing of a Tangier bar owner in June 1967, and also Orton's account of his onslaught on some mosquitoes. I got up and killed four creatures and splattered blood on the wall and gave a look at my underpants with which I'd swiped the terrified creatures. Though La includes Halliwell's first attack on Orton on June 27, 1967, and other anticipatory events, he perhaps in these cuts attempts to quell some of the violence posthumously associated with the playwright and events at the Knoll Road bedsit. He was, I'd suggest, consciously or unconsciously, trying to forestall, unsuccessfully, responses like those of Jonathan Meads and John Osborne. We see him doing something similar in the way he deals editorially with sex, especially in Morocco. La wrote to Ramsey that he had cut 25 pages from the Tangier diary, making it, he felt, much better, less garrulous and punchier. These cuts don't amount to a whitewash. Orton's interest in young teenagers is clear enough from what is published, but La trims details where this interest is especially explicit or disturbing. He cuts the line in which Orton continues having sex with one boy despite being told no. And also gone is Orton's infantilising description of another sex partner. If violence, early death and sex were key concerns for La as he edited the diaries for publication, there is also an ambivalence over effeminacy. Some of the camp anecdotes and especially some of the anecdotes shared with Kenneth Williams are cut. La thus edits one of Williams' tales which relates to a couple who divorced because the wife was too fond of the company of homosexuals. So this is a Kenneth Williams anecdote related to Orton which he then included in his diary and La subsequently cut. It's intriguing to to ask you why. He, the husband, opened the door into the lounge and there was his wife and these terrible homosexual young men all sewing cushion covers and saying things like That's a beautiful bit of stitching you have there, Angus. And what about the cording then, Hen? What about the cording around the edges? Won't that be bonny then? So there's this kind of concern with the kind of image of homosexuality which might come through the diaries if published in, in full, I think.
Another omitted section involves Orton describing a kiddie toy of a queen, whirring and spinning around a Tangier's bar, exclaiming, oh my dear, and isn't that camp? Aside from this, some indiscreet casual bitching and gossip is cut, which might yet, to follow Gavin Butt's argument, be indicative of a particular queer and artistic discourse, and mark out a certain separation of queer from straight worlds, which some found problematic. As I suggested earlier, the status of these sections as trivia has become highly debatable, for they rather indicate how some men were talking to and relating to each other, and also the way they positioned themselves in relation to camp and effeminacy, behaviours some campaigners for homosexual law reform in the 50s and 60s had become highly critical of. Orton was, as I've suggested, scathing about queens and effeminacy, and worked hard to develop what Copper describes as his masculine swagger. His repetitive critique in the diary nevertheless keeps the queen in the picture in a way that perhaps echoed too closely for John Lahr the effeminate stereotypes routinely marshalled by a homophobic 80s press. In his cuts, Lahr may have been attempting to counter such depictions to help produce, in his terms, a more subtle characterisation of homosexual life. And this is a quote from John Lahr in one of his letters. What he also perhaps what he's also perhaps doing was playing out some of Orton's own anxiety about such labels and accusations, especially given Orton's purported treatment as a teenager. In editing the diaries, La was thus obliquely reacting to the 1980s crisis. But if, in retrospect, Shepard is overly harsh in his judgment of La's homophobia, he's also right that La was bringing different agendas to bear. David Van Leer observes, for example, that as a heterosexual American, Lars stood doubly outside the gay English subculture in which Orton lived. He seems unaware of the class and sexual prejudices of both his sources and his subjects. The issue of queer representation in history, meanwhile, was less urgent for this married journalist than for others who considered themselves to be on the front line of 80s queer politics. The framing apparatus of the published diary, the introduction and reference notes, are certainly less angry and defiant than much of the gay and lesbian writing and commentary emerging around the same time. In the marked-up transcript in the Boston Archive, it becomes clear that Lars editorial eye is set on softening rather than sharpening the diary's edges. I'm going to try, what I want to do now is see if I can somehow, in some way, gather what I've been saying together. Um, And so my last section that I want to work through is called Changing Times and Changing Library Books. David Halperin, the historian, has argued powerfully that the grief and anger felt by many gay men and lesbians in the 1980s both enabled and limited a knowledge of the queer past. It gave a real urgency to the reclamation of that past, but also narrowed the ways in which it could take place and the kinds of representation that, as I've suggested with La, were deemed politic. Some emotions and emotional connections with history were not, Halperin argues, politically acceptable. Those relating, for example, to narcissism, shame, self-loathing, passivity, sentimentality, cowardice. If Orton was rarely sentimental, he was certainly narcissistic. And there is also an argument to be made about his shame and self-loathing. Orton's embarrassment that Halliwell may have accompanied him to the Evening Standard Awards of 1967 does not sit well with the more strident sexual politics of the 1980s. He ultimately took Ramsay, who became Mrs. Orton for the night. 
In the later decade, it became important to position Orton in opposition to and not complicit with the oppressive straight culture, which, Shepard argues, ultimately killed him and his lover. Orton, Shepard wrote, has us look with a mocking gay look at the combination of elements, family, NAF gender roles, nationalism, masculinity, propriety, which make up English fascism. In his Because We're Queers, Orton is pitched against each of these elements, and in this, he is drawn closer to gay politics of the 1980s. My overall aim, wrote Shepard, is to make a reappraisal of Orton from a radical gay position. Orton emerges from Shepard's work as a queer rebel, but there is also a tension in the text between this image of radical on the one hand and, on the other, Orton's misogyny and the often reactionary ways in which he responded to these putative facets of English fascism. It was nevertheless difficult, during the 1980s, to accommodate both strands of Orton's thinking and behaviour, or indeed to work out a relationship between them. And so I think Shepard rather simplifies this, this, um, this vision of, of Orton. In the early 2000s, Shepard returned to Orton's legacy and wrote persuasively on precisely this issue, the ways historical context can shift our readings and perspectives. He reflects that, as he wrote on Orton over the years, he constructs the playwright into something that reflects where I'm at now. This, by the early years of the new century, was a place of, and I'm quoting, profound boredom with an increasingly materialistic, elitist, and even oppressive mainstream gay culture. There had, by this time, by the time he wrote this, been a distinctive shift in the cultural climate. Triple combination therapy introduced in 1996 made HIV and AIDS less of a headline issue in the UK. The new Labour government, elected a year later, repealed Clause 28, set an equal age of consent, and at length introduced partnership and adoption rights. Commercially successful gay villages had emerged in London and Manchester and were being touted as part of the liberal cosmopolitanism of these cities. The drive for positive imaging had become less acute, and with the growth of queer theory in the academy, there was a different take on lesbian and gay cultures and radicalism, which troubled the binary gay-straight structures for understanding subculture and protest that characterised the 1980s. The historian and sociologist Geoffrey Weeks, in his most recent work, The World We Have Won, describes the development in the 1990s and early 2000s of a new ethics of intimacy, structuring everyday lives, in which the search for absolutes is being replaced by pragmatic decision-making and a recognition of ambivalence, conflict and constraints, which is particularist and contextual. Many were, he suggests, moving away from overarching and overly deterministic approaches to family and home life, for example. So he's kind of assessing a kind of shift in the, in the nature of politics, I think, from the 80s to the 90s. Thinking about Orton in this new context, in, in the context of the 2000s, perhaps makes things appear messier, perhaps less clear-cut. But there's also perhaps more conceptual space to hold together contradictory ideas and behaviours. In Orton's case, to hold simultaneously his multiple reinventions and his radicalism and sometimes disturbing conservatism and to kind of see this as part of a contradictory character. Shepard's perspective on and reading of La in Because We're Queers is convincing in many ways. A queer editor and biographer would surely have done something very different. Capote would, after all, maybe have been an interesting choice. 
But Shepard's stark analysis and uncompromising positioning of Ramsey and La did not account for the shifting allegiances I felt as I moved between these three archives, finding it hard not to sympathise at points with both figures, and indeed with Shepard, as they struggled over what to do with the Orton legacy and their feelings of responsibility towards it. Orton, I've suggested, self-consciously played with secrecy and revelation and repeatedly changed the stories he told about himself. In this, he was responding to a homophobic culture in ways that can be seen as distinctively queer. In my account here, I hope I've showed how the explosive diary and other archival material was hidden, lost, closely guarded, selectively revealed, the subject of widespread conjecture, and marshalled to different agendas at different historical moments. The queer dynamics of Orton's self-presentation thus, unsurprisingly, become apparent in the history and content of the archives relating to him. However fitting this might be, there is also a real frustration at the way Orton slips from view in the posthumous controversies documented at Boston University and the British Library, and amidst his own evasions evasions in the material held at the University of Leicester. My romantic notion of encountering him felt much better fulfilled in Islington, in the archive that was open well before the others. Here were the library books the couple had defaced before returning them and waiting behind bookcases to see the reactions of other users. The escapade cost them six months in prison in 1962, the couple's longest ever separation in their 15 years together. This was the prank at which Orton and Halliwell got caught out. And in the book cover collages and in the mural in their bedsit formed from over 1,600 plates, also torn from Islington Library books, we encounter something immediate and revealing about the playwright, his partnership with Halliwell and their joint interaction with queer, artistic and institutional cultures. These works are suggestive of a complex reworking of domineering ideas, icons and norms. The kind of reworking which the critic Alan Sinfield suggests allows those who feel culturally alienated to understand and reframe their deviance and to make sense of themselves. Simon Shepherd was right to acknowledge Eric Willits of Islington Library so warmly. Others might simply have ditched the book covers as mere victims of vandalism. This event was recorded live at the National Archives on the 21st of February 2008. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved.